Hey, welcome to New City Online. I'm Ron. And I'm Emily. And we're so glad you're joining us today. If this is your first time checking out New City Online, we're glad you're here. You can learn all about New City Church on our website, newcity.us. We'd also love to know you're tuning in and send you a gift in the mail. You know, one of my personal passions is a good cup of coffee. And love it or hate it, Starbucks is everywhere. So we'd love to buy you, wherever you are, a cup of Starbucks coffee to say thanks. Just go fill out the connection form at newcity.us connect, and I'll drop a Starbucks gift card in the mail to you this week. And a huge thank you to all of you who have given online to support the ministry here at New City. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, seek first. Two words with so much power. Jesus continues to say, seek first the kingdom of God. As we think about this statement, take a minute and think about what you seek first. For myself, in a very literal sense of the word, I would always seek first my phone. It was the first thing I reached for right when I woke up in the morning. I had to train myself out of that habit. Jesus knew about seeking. In Matthew 6, Jesus looked at the crowd and basically said, if you want order, peace, and fulfillment, seek my Father's kingdom first. This should be an order to our looking. He didn't say never seek anything else. He simply commanded, seek first the kingdom of God. We would love for you to take a step towards seeking first by partnering with us here at New City through giving. If you're already giving, thank you for being part of this and bringing gospel renewal to our city and world. If you're not yet giving, you can go to newcity.us give and begin giving there. Now let's continue to worship together. So 
told. It comes from Matthew chapter 21 verse 33 through 45. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a large group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the landowner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, Here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the vineyard for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, He will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders reject has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. If anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. Look around you, look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your day that if someone told you about it, you wouldn't even believe. That was the response from God to the prophet Habakkuk when Habakkuk pleads out to the Lord, God, where are you? As he's naming all of these bad things that are happening in his world and in his time, Habakkuk comes before the Lord and he says, God, where are you? 
And in this powerful response, God says, look around you. I'm doing something amazing, but if someone even told you about it, you would not believe. I, I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate to Habakkuk's his question there, not because I went through everything Habakkuk went through in his life, but I've certainly found myself in those times where, where I'm saying, God, what is going on? What, there is so much happening here. Where are you? Do you not see all these realities happening in the world? And as I've read through that verse this week, it's been rather convicting to me. It's hit me because God's statement there is a powerful one, isn't it? That Habakkuk, I want you to look around. I want you to be amazed, but notice something here, Habakkuk, that even if I tell you everything that's going, that's going to happen, you may not believe it. God's response is a powerful one. It's an encouraging one, but it's also a convicting one, isn't it? Because God, he assures Habakkuk that, that he is in control, that, that he has a plan, that it will come to fruition. And yet God points out something in Habakkuk. He points out something in my own heart. And I believe in all of our hearts that despite what evidence we have in life, despite all the good things that happen, despite all the promises that we have from God, that sometimes even being told, we refuse to believe the, the very things that we see with our own eyes. Well, in today's uh, mass message today, what we're going to see is that this, this element continues on, that because of our brokenness, we easily fail to see what God is doing in front of our own eyes. We, we fail to lean into his plan and, and trust out of faith that he's going to achieve something good, even when we see it with our own eyes. And, and in doing so, I think we miss out on life's greatest experience, which is to be in fellowship with our creator. We, we're going to be in the chapter of Matthew chapter 21 today as we continue in our series, the parable or the stories that Jesus told where we're looking at the parables of Jesus. These, these incredible, wonderful short stories that Jesus gives as a gift to us to help us understand who he is, the nature of God, and what God's plan is all about, and ultimately how you and I fit into those. They're, they're these wonderful stories, but one of the interesting things about parables is they kind of have this secondary nature to them, which is they have this ability to cause self-reflection, that as, as his audience hears, as you and I hear them, it causes this degree to where you and I start to self-reflect. As we think about the story, as we connect with the characters in the story and, and what's happening, it, it allows for this element of self-reflection today. And, and we're going to see that's exactly what's happening is Jesus is going to share a parable with a group of people and he's going to direct it right towards them. And they're going to even themselves have this moment of self-reflection. But we're in chapter 21 today. We'll be there in just a minute. But by way of recap, Matthew chapter 21 is a really important chapter. If you were with us last week, we talked about this because Matthew chapter 21 through 28, they all record the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry, right? We, we've gone 20 chapters now, but the final eight are all about one week. The previous were over three years. Now Matthew is gonna record this last week of Jesus' life. So it's jam-packed with a lot of really important stuff here. And you might remember that this last week, this holy week as we call it, it begins with Palm Sunday, right? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, right? And people are rejoicing and praising, but it's immediately followed with Jesus going into the temple, right? This house of the Lord, this, this extremely holy place that was to be set aside for worship and sacrifice. And what Jesus discovers when he goes into the temple, he's learned that the religious leaders ha have done everything but keep it such a place, 
for he, he walks in and he discovers that, that people have turned it into a den of thieves, that they, they're, they're using it as a marketplace. And to, to put it lightly, Jesus causes a scene. So much so that he goes in, he cracks whips, he flips over tables, and he drives out all of these people who have, have turned this temple, uh, this place of worship, into a marketplace. And it's a rather unforgettable moment, but one of the things that happens is that the animosity that, that has existed between Jesus and these religious leaders is now taken to another level because as the religious leaders start to feel their influence and their power over the people start to slip away because of Jesus, they confront him in the temple and they ask him this one simple question. They say, Jesus, who gave you the right? Jesus, who do you think you are to come in here and tell us what we can and can't do, right? They're concerned so much with authority because you see, for so many years, they have been the ones in authority. They've been the ones to dictate the spiritual matters of Israel. And here comes Jesus and he's literally turning the tables on them. And so they come to him and they say, where do you get your authority from? Who gives you the right to say all these things? Well, Jesus doesn't want to directly answer that question, largely because he's answered it many, many times before. But instead, what he does in chapter 21, beginning in chapter 21, is he, he sets off this series of three parables where Jesus is going to speak into really what is the issue at hand. The issue is not the authority, even though that's been clearly established. Jesus is going to speak three parables directly at these religious leaders that's going to speak to the nature of their hearts. That's the real issue that's going on here. So we're going to have back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back parables. We looked at the first one last week. We're going to look at the second one today where Jesus is going to talk about the, really what is the matter that is the, their sinful hearts that is prevalent throughout these religious leaders. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. We're going to take this section by section, but I invite you to follow along with me as we, be, as we jump in, beginning in verse 33, right? This is the parable that Jesus shares. He says, now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to the tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him. But the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his own son, thinking, surely, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here, come, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, they dragged him out of the vineyard, and they murdered him. It's not the most uplifting of parables, is it? In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's rather upsetting to hear, and yet... Once again, Jesus does what is common. He, he takes uh, uh, something that was extremely well-known and practiced during the day. He uses this to help tell the story. And the, the parable is rather simple, right? What we have is, is a wealthy landowner who decides he's going to lease out some of his land to other farmers, right? This was extremely common during the day where if someone, especially if they own lots of land and they didn't necessarily have the time or ability to do to manage all of it, what they would do is they would lease out their land. 
land, right? So this is what happens. This landowner says, all right, I'm going to take this land. I'm going to allow others to, to lease it from me, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever rented before. I've rented plenty of times before, apartments, homes, all this, right? Here's what I know, that in all rental agreements, there's really two things that matter, right? When the, when the landowner is is writing out an agreement with the, with the tenants, right? There's really two things that are expected, right? The first is take care of the place, right? Take care of my house, take care of this apartment, right? Don't destroy it all. That's the first. And then of course, the second is pay your dues, right? This is really the only two expectations that even in this parable that seem to be the case that's happening here. The, the landowner is saying, I want you to take care of the vineyard and, and I want you to pay what I'm owed, right? And in this case, it's not so much money as the agreement is in lieu of money, they're gonna agree to share part of their crop with the landowner that, that he is free to do with whether he pays that or uses it for himself, whatever that may be. But I want you to notice something here. This is really important that, that Jesus in the parable points this out, right? I want you to capture all that the landowner does even before he leases out his land, right? We, we learned that the first thing is that the landowner actually plants the vineyard, which means he would have gone in, he would have cleared the land, he would have helped tilled the soil, removed all the stones and all the other bad pieces. And actually he goes on and he says that he, he plants the vineyard, he plants the, the grape seeds to go into the ground. And then Jesus goes on and he says that he even built a wall around the vineyard, right? We see this idea that, that, the, that the landowner is, is establishing boundaries for protection. And maybe that's from other enemies. Maybe it's from even animals entering in and, and keeping them away from eating the vineyard itself. But we, we see that he's tilled the land. He's set up protection. He goes on, he says, he even dug a pit for the grapes, this, where, where people, they would take the grapes and they would press out the juice to be made into wine later, right? He's even providing the tools necessary to help this be a successful plot of land. And then he even goes on and he says that he built a lookout tower. So from all indications, what we see here is that this is a good landowner. This is exactly the type of person that you would want to lease from, right? This is where I would, I would want to go into and say, that's a good landlord, right? He has already done so much stuff, and then he leases it out to the tenants. But of course, the response from the tenants is tragic. It's not at all what we would expect because we learn on two separate occasions that when it comes time for the for the landowner to, to, to collect his what he what he is owed, his share of the crops, right? That we learn on two separate occasions that his servants, his representatives, they're either beaten or they're killed. Two separate times the the tenants fail to produce what what they what they owe to the landowner. It's a blatant disregard for the rental agreement. There is a complete re rejection of him, and there's an overall just disrespect for the landowner and what he's done for them. But the saddest part of the parable, of course, is in verse 37. After sending his multiple sermons to go collect, right, the, the landowner is sitting there thinking, well, what am I going to do here? Every time I send a servant, they, they kill him. And he thinks in his mind, he says, but what if I send my own son? What if I send my own flesh and blood, capture this, surely they will respect my own son. As if losing their worker, his workers wasn't bad enough, we learn that the, the farmers actually double down in their evilness and they decide to kill the, the son. It was common practice during this time that if you had a landowner like this and there was no apparent heir, 
And so if, if, the, if the landowner was to die and he didn't have anybody that was rightfully so to take his land, that in fact, a lot of times what happened is if somebody was leasing the land, that the land would go to them. And that seems to be what's happening here is that the, the evil farmers think, okay, well, let's do this. If we actually kill the son, if we can get rid of him, take him out of the picture, that when the, the landowner actually dies, we will actually get it for ourselves. So we start to see that, that the, the evil farmers are really only thinking about one thing, and that is themselves. They have no care at all for anyone else. But, so we start to see an aspect of their character, which is they are completely wrought with sin. After sharing this parable, though, Jesus, he goes on and he, he continues his discussion with the religious leaders, and he, and he begins with another question, right? He, he says, he goes on and he asks them, okay, when the owner of the vineyard returns, what do you think he will do to those farmers? So Jesus says, okay, I, here's the story. Now, religious leaders, I want you to tell me, what do you think is going to happen in the stories? And the leaders reply, he says, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and he'll lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest, right? It's a it's a simple question with a simple answer. Even the religious leaders captured here, they're like, well, obviously these men need to be held accountable and you need to find new tenants, right? But it's in that simplicity, it's in that simple question and response that Jesus is going to make the personal connection, right? Follow along with me here in the next section, beginning in verse 42 here. Jesus says this, he says, didn't you ever read this in scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it was wonderful to see. I tell you this, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce fruit. Didn't you ever read this? After sharing this parable, Jesus brings everyone's attention, uh, both the religious leaders and those in the temple who are hearing and watching this scene unfold. He, he brings everyone to this really famous section of the Older Testament, Psalm 118, a, a verse and a section that definitely this crowd, especially the religious leaders, would have known extremely well. It's, it's a psalm, by the way, that will be referred to many, many times throughout the New Testament by various authors and how it connects to Jesus himself. Now, we don't have time to get into the whole psalm today, but what, what essentially Jesus is talking about is as he, as he comments, right, that this stone that has been rejected, what, what, what Jesus is pointing to is this longstanding history in Israel where God has over and over again sent people to go and, and proclaim the goodness of who he is and invite them to turn away from their evilness, right? In fact, if you go back all the way to Moses, right, Moses himself, from Moses up until John the Baptist, God had sent over 20 prophets. Over 20 times, God had sent someone on his behalf to go to the nation of Israel and to invite them to call them away from their evil wickedness and turn back to the goodness of who God is. And now here we are again, that as Jesus is talking, he says, you know, you, you denied those 20 and now you've denied John the Baptist and you've even denied me even though they saw it with their own eyes. You see, these religious leaders, they, they've heard Jesus speak multiple times. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him raise people from the dead. And Jesus is pointing at us, but you're still rejecting the stone. 
I'm going to talk a lot about, more about the stone here in just a little bit, but by way of continuing on throughout the, these verses, right, capture again in verse 43 here, it says, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a nation that will produce a proper fruit. One of the most common metaphors in the Older Testament is that, that many of the prophets even use when talking about Israel is this, this metaphor of a vineyard that even Isaiah himself wrote extensively about this where he, he, he depicts the nation of Israel to such as something like a vineyard. And, and here, listen to this in Isaiah chapter five, beginning in verse one, Isaiah writes this. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. That is God's vineyard. Listen to this. He says, my beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, he cleared the stones and he planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and he carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. We capture this, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds very similar to the exact parable that Jesus has just shared. Because what was happening in Isaiah's day is the same thing that's happening now. That the, the leaders of Israel have failed to take care of the vineyard that God has given them. They failed to take care of the people and they failed to produce anything good out of it. Why? Because they have rejected God. He has sent over 20 prophets. He sent John the Baptist. And now God sends his own son, Jesus himself, and they are rejecting him as well. Look at the last part here, though. Continuing, rereading verse 43. It says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, capture this, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but the crowd, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. As I said at the beginning, right, there's this element of parables that, that cause this level of self-reflection. Well, we, we see that clearly here that they, the religious leaders are realizing he's talking about us. He, he's the one calling us the evil farmers. And by way of punishment, capture this again, right? Jesus says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from your hands and will be given to a, a new group of people who will produce fruit. In many ways, this is kind of like a divine breakup where Jesus is going to move on it, but instead of it being this whole, it's not you, it's me. No, Jesus is very clearly saying, no, it, it's, it's not me. It, it's clearly you. But as sad as negative in this parable may be, there is hope, there is grace that we begin to see. Because one of the first things that we see is that despite what level of evilness may exist in this world, that God always has a plan that he always has a way of bringing forth what he ultimately wants to accomplish. And it's amazing in this parable that, that we see in even an aspect of God himself and his character that, you know, the, the idea of sending multiple people over and over again, we see his love demonstrated that he's constantly coming to the people despite all their rejection. But he, he does tell us here that, that a new plan is coming. Jesus assures us that God will not stop, that, that a new nation will be built upon a proper stone, and good things will come as a result of it. And just like in the parable, here's the encouraging part for us, is that God is going to prepare it all for us, right? 
God will prepare the land. He will prepare the vineyard. He'll, he'll plant the seeds. He will give us protection, and he will give us the tools necessary to carry it out. And ultimately, he will enter into a new agreement with people that long to be part of his family and his vineyard. Well, as we close today, I want to bring us back to the scripture that Jesus quoted. Matthew 21 here, it says that the stone that the builders rejected has now become, underline this word, if you will, the cornerstone. It's, it's one of the greatest images that we have in all of Scripture that depict Jesus, that Jesus is seen as the cornerstone. We don't quite build buildings the same way today as they did in ancient times, but even though they still do this to some degree. But the cornerstone was an extremely pivotal part of the building process, right? The cornerstone was, was the foundational piece. It was the first piece that everything else built upon. I actually have a picture of, of a cornerstone here. You can see, right, that they would start with this, this main corner piece, and then they would go out from there. And the cornerstone is what tied every single thing together. And without the cornerstone, you risked actually this building being stable, right? It, it helped provide direction and, you know, where you want to go. And so the cornerstone was this pivotal piece. And here we have this idea that Jesus is being referred to the cornerstone of life. It's amazing that when you take the entire Bible, okay, from Genesis to Revelation, everything in this book, it points to, it centers around one thing, Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. And though he would be rejected by some, we, we learn through this parable, we learn in Psalm 18, that God is going to use Jesus as the chief cornerstone, the one, the true cornerstone that he would be the all in all. As I said, in multiple times in the New Testament, various authors would come back to this very metaphor and depict how it relates to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, he wrote this. He says, together we are his house, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And listen to this again. He says, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Peter, the Apostle Peter, one who actually saw Jesus before his very own eyes be rejected. This is what Peter would eventually write. He said, Christ, Jesus is the living cornerstone. I love that, right? Not just the cornerstone. He says he's the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Look at what Peter elaborates. He says, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the all in all, and capture this, we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of God's great building. We get to be a part of the vineyard that God is planning. He's called us to be living stones in this amazing building, and he desires that we would produce a good and bountiful crop that reflects him, and it's because of the gospel that we get to do that. You see, when, when we take the message of who Jesus is, his life, his story, this idea of coming to earth on our behalf to, to die in our place for, for our own sins, right? We, we recognize that the gospel teaches us that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he is the foundational piece to which our lives should be built upon. 
It, the gospel reminds us that, that the, of the vineyard that God is planting, right? It reminds us that the good we are to, to live out into this world, right? For those of us who know Jesus personally, for if you're listening today and you say, I know what it, what it means to have placed my faith in Jesus personally. I know the redemptive power of that. Understand that you and I have been entrusted with the greatest piece of information the world has ever known. And that is the gospel message that God designed us. He created us for fellowship, but because of sin, we are separated. But because of the goodness of Jesus, he goes to the cross on our behalf. He dies for our sin. And if we place our faith in that, that we are forgiven. We live in eternity with him. We've been entrusted with that good news. He wants us to go and spread that. So the question for us today is simply this. Are we building our life around the cornerstone or are we rejecting it? Are we trusting that God would produce in us a good fruit or are we looking to build our own vineyard? Are we looking to be our own cornerstone? My hope for us today is that we would see Jesus for who he is that he is alone, the cornerstone. And that's our bottom line today, one that I, I hope is encouraging to you, that Christ alone is the cornerstone. He is Lord and Lord of all. Will you pray with me today? Jesus, thanks for being our all in all. Thanks that you are the cornerstone, that everything in life centers around you. You created all that we see. You created us. And you created us to be in fellowship with you. And, and because of sin, God, we, are, we have been um, displaced because of that. But because of you, we have redemption. That we have the chance to, to build our lives upon you because of what it is you've done. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for everyone that is listening to this. That we would trust in you as the cornerstone. That we would see the life-giving power of it. That, that we would recognize that in a lot of times what we try to do is, is be our own stones. We try to build upon our own selves, our own abilities. We try to produce a crop that, that simply cannot be done without you. Father, you invite us into this vineyard. You invite us into this holy building that is good. It has protection. There, there's so much value in it. Father, would you allow us to, to lean into that today? Would you allow us to trust you in an amazing way? And thanks for going the efforts all the way for us to invite us in. Thanks for being our all in all, Jesus. We love you and we thank you. Amen. Christ Thanks so much for worshiping with us today, New City. If you would, no matter where you are, extend your hands for benediction as we go. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Turn his countenance to you and give you peace. Have a great week.